It's good to be with you today. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to open the word for the second week in a row. I'm not up here because of a COVID outbreak on the teaching team. I, this was planned, and I'm happy to be here to, to preach the word today. Somebody say amen. All right, I'll take that. All right, will you open with your Bibles? Um, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We are in, a two, um, we're in week two of a series that we're calling Formed. And um, in this series, our focus is going to be around discipleship to Jesus. We're working through um, this sort of series to, to understand how Jesus forms his disciples. So last week, what we did was we, we gave sort of a working definition of what a disciple is. And we said a disciple is, is someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus as Savior, Lord, and teacher. And this series is going to take a specific focus on, on, on Jesus, our teacher, as we think about being his disciples. And so this week, we're, we're turning kind of from the theme of disciple to what we're going to call the process of discipleship. How does Jesus actually form his disciples? That's sort of the pressing question. And so we gave a, a definition of a disciple. And, and so this week, what I, what I want to do is give um, a couple different definitions of discipleship that I think will be helpful as we consider, move from sort of the identity of a disciple to this sort of process of discipleship. So here's a couple of definitions. I like both of these. I think they're helpful. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. That's by the late Dallas Willard. You'll notice that that statement is a little bit different than like the WWJD bracelet because it, it considers that Jesus is a you know, first century itinerant rabbi traveling, that he, was, um, that he was the son of God and that he was the savior of the world. So he is a little bit different than each of us. But who, um, who would Jesus be if he were you? That's one way of thinking of the process of discipleship. Another one that, that I love that comes from this great book is called, um, it's called Following the Master by Michael Wilkins. And he says, discipleship is becoming like Jesus as we walk with him in the real world. It's good, right? So those are non-original definitions, but I give them to you um, to consider this week. And so... If the term disciples and identity centered around who Jesus is, then discipleship, we will discover over these next few weeks, is becoming like Jesus, walking with him, and even doing what he did, doing the things that Jesus did as part of discipleship. So we come back again to this question, okay, how does Jesus form his disciples? How does he actually transform them so that they can walk with him and become like him and, and do what he did? And so today we're going to consider that Jesus, who's our teacher, savior, and Lord, forms his disciples through what we'll call instruction and practice. Jesus forms his disciples through instruction and practice. And that brings us to our text this morning, which is in Matthew chapter 9. And we'll go into a little bit of chapter 10 as well. So turn to Matthew 9, verses 35. And we'll start there. We'll read through chapter 10, verse 8. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying and give without pay. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus is addressed about around 90 times throughout the gospels and at least 60 of the times that Jesus is addressed, he is referred to as teacher or rabbi. It kind of depends on how you translate how he's addressed, but typically he's, he's addressed as teacher or rabbi. And we often, as I think Christians in sort of the modern era, we often forget that Jesus is a teacher. And in forgetting that, we often fail to reckon sort of our lives with his teachings. So let me ask you this question this morning. When you think of Jesus as a teacher, what comes to mind? Or I'll put it this way. What kind of teacher do you think Jesus was and is? What kind of teacher? A couple images here to help us think through this. We'll put the first one up there. I think that many disciples of Jesus, and, and I just want to remind you that being a Christian and being a disciple is synonymous, okay? So there are not Christians who are not disciples. There are not disciples of Jesus who are not Christians, okay? So I think that many disciples of Jesus don't take his teachings seriously or um, they simply get, as you can see in this picture, overwhelmed by it to the point of ignoring it because we, I think we often think that Jesus is like this. So imagine this is Jesus and he looks like, I mean, you can't see this as good as I could, I guess, see it on my computer, but he sort of looks like Walter White from Breaking Bad or like a college prof. And, and behind him is all of this data and information. And I, I seriously stared at the, at the chalkboard for like a long time. I'm like, is it physics? Is it math? I don't even know what's up there. But imagine that this is Jesus and behind him is maybe, maybe behind him rather than whatever that is. It's like the entirety of the gospel accounts. Perhaps more specifically, it's the teachings on the Sermon um, on the Mount. And this teacher, Jesus, has just finished a lengthy lecture. And then he stares at the class. And you can see the class there. He stares at them 
in sort of an intimidating, intimidating fashion and in an ominous way, he says, there's gonna be a test. And the test would be, what would the test be? I don't know, the test might be to sort of regurgitate the data, maybe to solve a few problems. So we think Jesus is a teacher. Sometimes we look at it like this and we throw his teachings out the window and, and go for sort of status quo Christianity. But what if, what if Jesus is a different kind of teacher? Here's, here's another image of a, of a teacher. What if Jesus is more like, like an auto shop teacher? Did anybody take, I, I feel like I'm dating myself by saying, does anybody take auto shop like growing? Okay, like couple, couple. <laughs> Couple generations represented in that, so I'm not judging, <laughs> not judging anybody. So here we imagine, like I imagine that the teacher in this photo is, is like, it's the guy in the middle. Maybe just because his shirt's a different color, but the guy in the middle is the auto shop teacher. And, and what, what he's doing is, is in the, the teacher in the middle, he, he's not like writing a bunch of data on a chalkboard and saying you're going to be tested on this. He's saying, look, this is a car engine. And this is how an engine works. And here we have a car and it's, the engine and the car have to work together in unison so this car can actually go somewhere. And so what happens like in an auto shop class is that the engine might be like on the ground and, and the auto shop teacher says, I'm gonna show you how to put this engine in the car so that we can drive somewhere. So back to the image of the first person, of the first teacher, his message to his students is there's gonna be a test and you better pass it. And then the, the message from the second teacher is we're gonna actually do this together. And what I want to express to you and, and maybe even convince you of, whether you're in this room or watching online today, is that Jesus is more like the second type of teacher than the first. Yes, Jesus had lengthy teachings. Yes, the, he at times sort of did like a, like a dictated, almost sermon type thing. And he wanted his disciples to take it seriously. But Jesus was doing more than just transmitting data or information. He was forming a people that could walk with him. People that would actually do the things that he did. And so Jesus' message to us, we, we, we remind ourselves of the way he called his disciples. He said, come to me and follow me and learn from me, learn my way of life. Jesus, in the text that we just read, we know that Jesus is talking about a kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus announced is actually breaking into our world. The rule and reign of God is breaking into our world. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about what life is like in the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus himself He's not just our teacher, but he's the king. And so Jesus forms his disciples, we'll see today, through instruction. He's instructing them, but it's also practice because there's an invitation and a participation in what Jesus is doing. The Greek word for instruction that comes up a number of times in our passage and then through other parts of the gospel accounts, the, that word is the Greek word paraangelo. And para means close beside, Angalo means to inform. 
So Jesus is an instructor or a teacher who, he doesn't just teach from afar, like from a chalkboard lecturing at the front of a room, but he instructs from close beside his disciples. And it's very important that we see it that way. So let's walk through this passage before, you know, we send you out for sugar comatose from Kona ice. Let's go through this verse by verse for a little bit. Look at verse 35 of chapter nine. It says this, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So what we notice here in this passage about what Jesus is doing is that he's preaching, that he's teaching, so he's instructing people and he's performing miracles. So Jesus is announcing and declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he's also not just saying that, he's demonstrating that. He's proving that the kingdom of heaven has actually come to earth because he is healing people. He is bringing light into darkness. We read on in verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now we're gonna come back to this verse in a little bit because this really is the heartbeat of Jesus. So just kind of save it, we'll come back to it. And we go on. In verse 37 it says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, <clears throat> excuse me, and to heal every disease and affliction. So I want you to notice something in this, that's happening in this passage about the way Jesus teaches. Jesus, we know he's instructing his disciples. He's like, look around at what's happening here. And then he tells them what you need to do is pray. There's so much work to be done. There's so many who are harassed and helpless, people who are lost spiritually, people who are physically and emotionally sick and afflicted. And he says to his disciples, you need to pray. And it's like, well, pray for what? He says, pray for laborers. And isn't it interesting? This is, I, I wanna draw this out. Isn't it interesting that Jesus tells them to pray for laborers and then almost immediately says, that's actually who you are? He's like, go pray. And they're like, for what? For people, like who? And he's like, it's actually you. So here's a principle for discipleship. You will often be the answer to your own prayer. In the process of becoming like Jesus, where we notice what he's doing in the world, you will often become the answer to your own prayer. Here's what I mean. So just, just imagine, I imagine like this, what's, we have like chapter breaks and paragraph breaks. It makes it feel like it's like, and then like 10 days later, Jesus started doing something else. This here is actually sequential. This is happening in real time. So Jesus, I imagine him is he, he sort of sends his disciples into a mini prayer meeting, like maybe in a room. He's like, go and, and start to pray. And Jesus has sent them to pray for laborers that will join him in his work. And so um, I always like, when I read the gospels, I always try to imagine what's happening. I wanna do that in sort of an orthodox way where I don't just like impart my own thinking behind it. But I imagine Jesus calling his disciples into a room for a prayer meeting and they, like, they're getting used to Jesus and they don't know exactly who he is. So they, they go into a, like this prayer meeting and they're like, Father in heaven, 
Jesus, our rabbi and teacher who claims to be your son, has told us to pray for people to join him in his work. And immediately Jesus breaks into the room and he's like, I found the people. I found the laborers. It's actually you. They're like, is it us? He's like, no, actually, like, I want you to pray for laborers. But what happens is when we join Jesus in that is we find out that we are the answer to that prayer. Is anybody with me right now? Has that ever happened in your life? Lord, I'm praying that there would be somebody who would have compassion for this person nearby. And Jesus goes, I've got somebody in mind, actually, for that project. That is what I am saying is happening here in this passage. You will often be the answer to your own prayer. So Jesus breaks into this prayer meeting and he says, it's you. And what this is, is the radical call of Jesus in discipleship. Jesus points at the darkness of our world to his disciples. And he says, I want you to look at that. And then he says, I'm sending you into that darkness as light. And that's what's happening. Can we put up verse 38 again? This is really like, this is really compelling. This is a little bit of like Bible nerd, nerd out moment, but I think it's important. Jesus does this. He says this, he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And then I want you to focus on that word to send out laborers into his harvest. That phrase send out is the Greek word ekbalo. Now I want you to, now let's put up um, chapter 10, verse one. So we just saw that word ekbalo for send out, but in, in 10, one, it says this, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And it says to cast them out. And that word to cast out is also the word ekbalo. So I want you to th- just, just go there with me. I'm trying to make a point here. Jesus uses the same word to describe the way he sends his disciples out into the world. He uses the same word to describe casting demons out of a human being. Is that intense? Does it feel, it's it's weighty, isn't it? Jesus, you know, this is, I I think this is sort of the, the word play of this is, the genius of the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew who was writing this text. But I think that Jesus wanted to clue us into another discipleship principle and it's this. Jesus is just as committed to casting light into the world as he is in casting darkness out of the world. And the way that Jesus casts both his light into the world and darkness out of the world is by sending disciples into the broken world who will love and embody his ways. That's actually what discipleship is. To be a disciple of Jesus, it means that we are not just sort of like distant learners, but actually partners. So again, think back of the image of the shop teacher. The, the, the people who are learning are not like off in the distance sort of scribbling down notes. Their head is looking into the hood of the car because they are actually going to partner with Jesus in what he's doing. Because that's what discipleship actually is. So that one translation of that word ekbalo is to compel one to depart or even to expel someone or something. To expel someone. 
Jesus is expelling demons out of people that are oppressed. And Jesus is like expelling his disciples out into the world. He cast darkness out of the world by casting his disciples into the world. So let's pause for a moment and think about our own lives as disciples of Jesus on the process of becoming who he would be if he were you. Maybe this morning you recognize that Jesus wants to expel you out of something so that he can send you into somewhere, someplace, so he can send you into something. I think even now, just sort of in like, like living in, in this area that perhaps Jesus is expelling disciples out of the sort of suburban rat race of accumulation of possessions that actually possess us. Jesus is like, I'm expelling you out of that. Perhaps it's sort of just the, in, in, in our culture, this like need to accumulate, to have vacation homes and to have sort of the perfect balance of leisure and careerism. I think to some degree, Jesus is saying, I'm actually expelling you out of that because I have a mission for you to engage with. I have a partnership and a participation that I'm calling you into. I'm calling you out of mediocrity and the status quo of sort of modern Christianity. And Jesus is saying, there's darkness in the world. And my answer to that darkness is your life transformed by mine. Amen? That is actually the way Jesus does this. And so Jesus is looking for partners Jesus is looking for a community of disciples. The, the, the group that Jesus forms together, this isn't gonna be a major point, but I, I, I need to point this out. This is the most awkwardly constructed like community of disciples you could imagine. And we're not gonna go through all of the names, but we'll just, I'll just let it be known that if, if, you're, if you're choosing partners, like Jesus is not choosing the cream of the crop here, okay? Jesus is, is choosing poor fishermen. So these aren't like hobby fishermen. These are people like they, they make their life, you know, through, through fishing, I know that's offensive to some of you, but um, Jesus is not picking the best. And even more than that, Jesus is choosing disciples that there's no other reason why these people would be working together and partnering together for Jesus. I'll give two examples. I think we've said this before, but it's worth noticing. Jesus chooses a tax collector named Matthew. So again, when we think tax collector, don't think like CPA or even like IRS agent. Think like like national traitor who has betrayed his people to the empire of Rome for the purposes of gaining some extra cash. Jesus says, you're on the team. And then Jesus chooses, we, we read his name and we won't have a ton of time to talk about him, but Jesus chooses Simon the Zealot, which would be basically an anarchist. So Jesus chooses somebody who is through like treacherous means trying to take from the people of Israel. And Jesus takes someone who through really unjust means is trying to overthrow the empire of Rome and, and, and just obliterating anything in their past. Jesus takes the two of them and says, you're my partners. You're gonna to participate together in my work to cast darkness out of this world by shining light into it. Jesus picks an awkward and horribly constructed discipleship groups. Discipleship group. 
And he says, okay, this is gonna be a process. This isn't gonna get figured out overnight. And he says, but you're gonna get ekbalod out into the world for my purposes. Okay, so that's just an aside. If you think that you couldn't like possibly be in relationship with Christians that think differently than you, I would just suggest that the way of Jesus would tell you that you're wrong. Anybody, amen, okay? In fact, if, you're, if your community in Christ includes people with different backgrounds and with different ways of thinking, coming under the Lordship of Jesus, man, I think that's actually what Jesus had in mind. Okay, we persevere, we keep going, okay? Let's go on to, to chapter 10, verses six through eight. I wanna read this. Jesus sends them out. He's sending them specifically to the house of Israel, but I want you to notice what happens here, okay? This is about the partnership that Jesus is inviting them to participate in. In verse six, it says, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice Jesus said that at the beginning of our text, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now his disciples are sent to do that. And then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons, ekbalo demons. He says, you received without paying, now give without pay. There it is right there, instruction and practice. Jesus is doing a transformational work in the lives of his disciples where they are now doing what he does. Not as fully formed disciples, not as people like we figured it out and then like, like we graduated. It took us you know, 50 years, but now we're ready to do it. No, he's like, this, this is the way the process works. I'm gonna send you out to do what I do. So they've been with Jesus. They're in the process of becoming like him, but now they're doing and practicing what he does. So what does that sort of participation look like? I think there's some great clues in our text. Like, we're, like we wonder, okay, so if discipleship is, is being with Jesus and then beginning to, to do what he does as we become like him, well, what, what kind of participation is he calling us into? It's all right there in the text. It is three things. They all start with the letter P and I'm just worked out that way. I didn't, I didn't plan it, okay? The three things that they do as they participate with Jesus is this, it's prayer, it's power, and it's proclamation. Prayer, power, and proclamation. Jesus has instructed them in that way, but now they're practicing that way. We'll start with prayer. I mean, the, 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 the most important thing that we can do as disciples of Jesus is pray. Before Jesus sends them out to do anything, he, he instructs them to pray and to pray earnestly. I think the kind of prayer that Jesus is moving his disciples into is this prayer that they would have the heart motivation of their teacher. That what moved Jesus would move them. The truth is, is the disciples of Jesus, they don't always know what Jesus is doing, but they are always asking what are you doing? There's like a, like a spirit-led curiosity in the disciple of Jesus as they walk into any relationship, any job, any community, any, you know, I don't know, sideline of the soccer field. They're always asking Jesus, what are you actually doing here? What are you up to? 
What do you see, Jesus? How can I see this like you? And what happens when we disciple under Jesus with that, that kind of praying, we will, again, I'm arguing, we will realize that we are the answer to our prayer. It's like, Jesus, if you could just send somebody into this company that loves you and that wants to do right and wants to, to work hard and be a blessing to people, and Jesus would be like, I actually did do that. And it's prayer that actually awakens that in us as his followers, okay? When we, when we approach our discipleship to Jesus, prayerfully wondering what his heart is and wanting to see what he sees, he answers that prayer every single time. The second thing is this. Disciples of Jesus, they participate in his kingdom in power. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is demonstrating that his power is so all-consuming in this text that it actually extends to and through his disciples? Jesus' power is, is massive. It's, it's, it's like there's examples of like the woman who Jesus walks by and she just needs to touch his garment and she'll be healed. It's that kind of power that Jesus has. But did you know that in Acts chapter 19, this is after Jesus dies and is resurrected and after the spirit falls at Pentecost. In Acts 19, there's a disciple of Jesus named Paul. And the power of God is working through him in such a massive way. Like this is actually in there. Paul is healing so many people that they're actually having him touch like handkerchiefs and garments and they're taking those and they're giving them to the sick. I want you to just think about that for a second. Jesus' power is so, I guess, potent that a woman touches him and is healed, but then Jesus' power extends through his disciples. And at our church, we do not believe that that extension ended when the Bible was produced, okay? We don't believe that. We believe that his power continues to extend through his disciples. And so I'm not, I'm not advocating for some sort of like factory producing like miracles, like, like whether, like I'm not saying we do the exact same thing, touch the garment, hand it out and it all works. I'm not saying that, but I am imploring you to ask the question, like when was the last time you asked Jesus's power to work through you? Like we walk into spaces and we're overwhelmed. We forget that Jesus is our teacher, that he's showing us the way. Like when was the last time you found yourself in an impossible situation and you said, Jesus, let your power work through me right now. That's actually the promise of discipleship. We don't, we don't know what will happen every time, we don't see every person that we pray to be healed, get healed, but we continue to pray that the power of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven would be demonstrated through his disciples, the church. Anybody amen on that? So what we do is we walk into spaces um, in a spirit of prayer, believing like, God, you could heal this marriage. God, you could remove this cancerous, this cancer. God, you could transform the city. God, you could transform this person in my life. God, you could transform me. Discipling under Jesus means walking in that power, not power on demand, but a power that actually flows through you. The third thing is this. 
It's proclamation. We can't always like guarantee what kind of power will go through us, but every single disciple of Jesus is called to proclaim his gospel. It's non-optional actually in the life of a disciple. Jesus at the beginning of our passage is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's, it's in him, the person Jesus Christ who's entered into our world. And then at the end of our passage, the disciples are doing the same thing. They're saying, actually, there is a way that is the way, the truth and the life. And it's Jesus Christ, our savior, our Lord and teacher. And so prayer and power and proclamation are not, are not sort of like options for disciples. It's what Jesus has actually called us into. He's so committed to doing that in our world that he uses the same word to describe, again, casting demons out of the world as he describes as casting you and me and us together into the world. That is what's happening in this passage. And the truth is, is that it's all very intense, right? Like it sounds like a lot. Like I read that text, I'm like, man, I kind of like my life. It's sort of like works. And I think that many people, when they read the teachings of Jesus, there's something that rises up in us that's like, well, the thing I'm doing might, it may, it, it, you know, maybe it's working. I mean, maybe you're not, maybe you're at the end of the rope, but I think a lot of us, are convinced that what Jesus is asking is just far too much and we prefer our actual life. But what if Jesus is offered to disciple under him is not just a burden, but it's a kindness. What if it's actually in compassion that Jesus calls us into this life? He's like, I love you so much that I'm gonna call you out of the status quo and mediocrity and into something that's real and true and eternal. What motivated Jesus, we're told, this is back in, in chapter nine, verse, verse 36. What motivated Jesus was that he looked at people and he saw that they were harassed and helpless and he had compassion on them. And I wonder if it's not too much of a stretch to say that Jesus looks at us and he says, you're actually harassed and helpless as well. Your way of life isn't working. You think it's working, but it's actually not. It's enslaving you. Jesus' heart for his disciples, we'll move quickly through this, but I, I, I feel like we have to look at this. Jesus' heart for his disciples is seen, I think, most clearly in just a couple pages to the right in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says this. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden actually light. Jesus knows that many of the things that capture us are actually enslaving us. And Jesus knows that actually being a disciple and taking on the process of discipleship is not even just like a Christian idea. Every single person you meet is doing that. 
They are discipling under something or someone, and they are a process, in a process of becoming like that something or that someone. And isn't that true? We're all becoming like something, and Jesus says, true freedom is when you become like me. So Jesus calls his disciples. Even as he's sending them out, this is just the process, it's ongoing. He sent them out, they do amazing things, and then again, he says, come to me if you're weary and weighed down by anxiety. Come to me if you're trying to keep up. Come to me if you're trying to do better, as the teachers of our culture say, and you've been overwhelmed by your inability to do better. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest from that. He says this, we'll end here. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now stay with me for one more minute. Yoke is sort of this multifaceted term in Hebrew farming and discipleship, okay? And it's a term that was used often in first century Jewish culture. So a yoke would be something that an ox or more likely um, two ox, is that oxen? Multiple ox, oxen. Oxen would put on a yoke and, the, and they would go forward, usually like an older, maybe more experienced ox leading the way with a younger ox next to him. And they together would put on this yoke that would help them to till the land so they could um, harvest, so that they could cultivate the land. Because this is how, this is this type of society that they lived in. And so people knew this phrase. And it was often, it was also a term in the scriptures and particularly in Hebrew culture that denoted this idea of servitude. And in a positive way, yoke would be serving God and in your community. But also it, the term yoke was a strong word that could even denote slavery. So think of like the Old Testament phrase, the yoke of oppression. And what, it, what happened was it became a term that was used to describe taking on the teachings and interpretations of a Jewish rabbi. Now remember, Jesus is more than that, but Jesus is a teacher in, in sort of the rabbinical fashion. And when you discipled under a teacher, you would take on this teacher's way of looking at the scriptures and their way of living life. In the Jewish faith, there's two types of yoke. The kingdom of man, which is like slavery and oppression, and the kingdom of heaven, which is service to God and to one another. And a disciple would have to find the kind of teacher that would lead them to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that's me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, that is my yoke. Jesus is telling his disciples, every person takes on a yoke, but only mine is light taking on the yoke of Jesus, the life of Jesus that's lived out in prayer and power and proclamation in our world. Jesus is saying that's actually freedom. It's light. He'd even use the word easy. Not, not simple, not easy in the sort of like, ah, I don't have to do anything, but it's, but it's ease. There's an ease to following Jesus when he is our savior and Lord. I love the way the pastor Eugene Peterson described this, this, this phrase, and we'll end here. This, this text from Matthew 11, this is the way that he paraphrases it in what's called the message. Do we have it? Are we there? Are you tired and worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, 
get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I love this phrase, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus would say, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And isn't that true? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to take serious your call to discipleship. We want to join you in what you're doing in our world. And we want to recognize that it is the only way that is true life. We recognize, Lord, today that when we join you in what you're doing, it frees us from the things that oppress us, whatever they may be, some more overt than others. We simply want to come to you today in humility and say, Jesus, we need, to, we need to watch you. You need to show us how to do it. Help us to learn from you as we follow you. In your name we pray, amen.